This is The Solid Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. Solid is about the new hardware movement, the radical new way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. It's about design, electronics, software, networks, materials, and the horizons of technology, like synthetic biology. The next Solid Conference will take place on April 20 through 22, 2016, in San Francisco. For more information on the Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Jim Stogdill is, by my recollection, the godfather of the Solid Conference. He's a technologist, a writer, a photographer, and a former submarine officer. For two years, he was the general manager of O'Reilly Radar, where he was a driving force behind the creation of Solid. John and I sat down with Jim to catch up and hear some of his thoughts on the direction of technology, from wearables to reference peanut butter. So it's great to be here in Brooklyn with Jim Stogdill, who's one of the founders of the Solid Conference, formerly the head of radar at um, O'Reilly Media, uh, where he and I worked closely initially to sort of sketch out the idea of Solid. Um, and then uh, David and Joey came in as well to uh, to realize it. And so all of us collaborated on the program last year. Um, Jim, great to have you here. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Awesome. So let's... Uh, Let's kick it off. What's a cool thing you've seen in the last month? Oh, you're starting with me, are you? Yeah. Go to the guy start. whose voice is cold, just walked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim's been sitting out in the hall going like, me, 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 me. <laughs> Warming up. Uh, you're going to laugh. The coolest thing I've seen lately is a thing called the Hemingwright. Have you seen this? No. Um, so I'll tell a story, a little bit of a backstory. Well, is there something called the Hemingwrong? No, I'll, yeah. I'll tell a little bit of a backstory. I was reading a book recently. The author mentioned something about his word processor. And I thought, whoa, that's weird. Somebody still writes with a word processor or do they just mean software? So I Googled it. Turns out that a lot of journalists and others out there today still use this thing called the Neo, which was a mm. by a company called AlphaSmart. And it's a brain dead simple word processor with a little liquid crystal display. Um, and you can't get distracted by it. It's hmm. Too simple to be distracting because it doesn't do anything but let you type text. Well, there's kind of a cult following for these things. And so I was poking around looking at that. And I ran across something called the Hemingwright, which I think must have been inspired by the Neo. But it is a up-to-date version of essentially electronic typewriter. Huh. It has, if the reports are to believed, an amazing keyboard with great touch. Uh, it has one switch on it that lets you turn on the Wi-Fi so that it can synchronize in real time with your Evernote account, mm-hmm. um, although you can't see it doing that. Right, it has right, a right. paper or um, digital paper display on it that's a very small, just shows maybe the last paragraph you've typed. Uh, and, and that's it. It's a typewriter for the modern age. Hmm. And they started on Kickstarter a while back. They were way oversubscribed. They're now taking pre-orders for the next batch. And... Uh, yeah, naturally, I ordered one because I couldn't help myself. <laughs> um, you know, they described this how much for, are they selling it for? Uh, in pre-order now, it was three ninety nine. So, like, it's absurd, right? Yeah, it's yeah, three hundred ninety nine dollars yeah. for a thing that basically types to Evernote, and you can't right. even see it doing it. <laughs> you pay money to break a single function out of your computer and make it incompatible yeah. with the rest of your computer. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. this is something that really resonated with me because yeah. I actually. I took, you know, the last Macintosh I had, rather than retiring it, I stripped off everything, including Wi-Fi, and tried to turn it into something like that. But it's too easy to break what you just broke and get back <laughs> online when you want to. And I just have a, I have a tremendous struggle with distraction with these things. Um, so writing for me has become this difficult thing. I've been writing on one of these Neos since I found it. Really? And it's absolutely 
spectacular. Uh-huh. I sit down. Oh, you're really going to laugh at this. I also got rid of my smartphone and got a $15 feature phone. Really? And now when it's time to go write, I lock myself in like either the third floor of my house or at a coffee shop with nothing. I don't bring anything with me but my Neo and my $15 feature phone with no data plan. Uh-huh. And I can sit there for two straight hours, lose track of time, and rip out reams of text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just haven't been able to do that in any other way. Yeah. So, so anyway, go, yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, I will ask the question, why, why, why is this better than having an app? You know, they've got, they've got programs for the Mac. What is it called? Oh, crap. What is it called? Oh, well, there's it Rescue right Time. Room, and right there's the other room. one that just yeah. shuts stuff down. Yeah, okay, yeah. Software so, for the modern distracted man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's something, I mean, I know how I, I have emotions about this topic and my emotions say that having a separate hardware thing with a real keyboard feels a lot better. But I mean, let's let's explore that for a minute. Why yeah. why do you prefer to have a, an entirely separate device with one single function for this particular function, which is very core to what you do, rather than integrating it all into one big convergence device? Well, to be honest, I don't prefer it. I'm forced back against the wall into it. Is the way I feel about it. I would certainly prefer to just be able to use my Mac and tune out distractions and and deal with it that way. I have tried every one of those apps and probably others and somehow I've managed to circumvent them. I've actually gone so far as to sit up in my attic with an old mechanical typewriter and type that way, but I'm usually defeated by the OCR afterwards. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, I don't know the answer to the question, David, really. I, it's more like, um, all I can tell you is I sat down with this, I wish I would have brought the Neo with me, but I didn't have room in my bag today. But um, well, on the radio, people don't know that you don't have the Neo. <laughs> so let me show you this thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know I don't know what it is. It, uh, it's hard to describe, um, but, uh, the computer in my hand, even if all of those things have been turned off, still has, you know, what's the right word? The affordances, the hooks, mm-hmm. the mental whatever that makes me think I should be able to alt tab over to a browser. And so that little timer in my head that after five or 10 minutes of typing with flow says, oh, let's take a little micro snack break and look mm-hmm. at what's happening on Twitter still kicks off. Mm-hmm. I sit down in front of these, one of these other devices that process seems to be short-circuited in a nice way, and I just write for an hour or two hours without thinking. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I think one other benefit of this thing, frankly, is that um, because it only displays the last paragraph of text, and the only way you can move to see any other stuff is by hitting the up arrow it can, for a very long time. There is no, like, none of the normal things you'd see on the screen of a computer. It just, it sort of, once you write it, it just sort of disappears. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find myself writing with a notebook next to me to remember where I want to go or what my outline is rather than trying to outline in the device first. For a long time now, I've been dying to recreate the airplane experience outside of airplanes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I get so much done on airplanes. Um, email, ironically, I'm extremely good at replying to email on airplanes. I use the Gmail offline mm-hmm. um, Chrome app and uh, download all of my Gmail as I'm sitting on the plane. And then I can I can reply to, you know, 60 email messages on a single flight across the country going back. And, and I, uh, when I'm on one of these flights, I'll go back, you know, two months in my inbox and reply to every unread message in my inbox from the last two months. I can always and tell when you I can always tell when you've been traveling because I suddenly get <laughs> like, like 15 emails from you. I'm like, oh, man, exactly. John's been very productive today. <laughs> he must be flying somewhere simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Writing a lot of simultaneous emails. Right. So very good at that. Yeah. Right. No, I, I think if I were going to start a company tomorrow, I think I would consider having the Wi-Fi 
or the, you know, the internet access on a, on a timer and have it just go off for two hours in the middle of every day and everybody just would know when it was going to happen. And we'll just all take mm-hmm. a flight together every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. The, well, the, like, one other comment I'll make about this Hemingwright thing is uh, they, in their, in their talk about it, and one of the things that inspired them to make it is they talk about heirloom technology, which is sort of an absurd, kind of ridiculous thing to say. Mm-hmm. I'm almost embarrassed to even say it in a way. Um, but there was something that kind of feels nice about it. It's like it, if this device is so simple and if it is actually effective, uh, it probably will work for 30 or 50 years. You know, it's not mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. – it doesn't become a throwaway like like so many other things we buy. So that's a potentially interesting side effect of the sort of narrowly focused piece of hardware. I mean, this this is a great example also of, um, uh, you know, interfaces changing as – uh, hardware becomes easier to make and more distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, with the Evernote connection in particular, it's taking something that's a cloud intelligence and cloud storage and extending it into a place where it hadn't been before, mm-hmm. which is you know a typewriter type environment. So you're able to um, you're able to get to this this software intelligence um, without dealing with a computer. Mm-hmm. And it's it you know it's this is a much more interesting version of like the internet connected light switch or something like that. I think it's it's a very nice example of that, I think. So I mean when talking about Internet of Things as stuff, I I get I get increasingly frustrated when people lead off their Internet of Things conversations with, what would happen if your toaster were connected to the internet and could talk to your coffee machine? It's like yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what would happen <laughs> because it's a toaster. I want it to make toast for me. Yeah. You know, it but sounds I, like it would be an annoyance in the yeah. morning where I have to get my iPhone out to turn on my toaster. <laughs> yeah. But I mean I mean and and like we 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 joke about all that stuff, especially since we see so much technology in our day-to-day lives. But I mean, I like things like this Hemingwright, which really take a nice feature of having cloud connectivity and just just very nicely and slightly expand a very natural feature of the affordance of that type of device and suddenly make it way more useful. I mean, an internet-connected typewriter seems very like a very nice thing to have. I mean, it requires low bandwidth. It gives you, you know, the value proposition is very clear. You still know that it's a typewriter and how to interact with it, but but it just works a little bit better um, as a result of all this massive resources that have been developed, you know, put into developing cloud computing. I mean, at the user end of it, it's just like, you got a typewriter and it works real nice. And it's a lot mm-hmm. easier than carrying around a fold-up Faraday cage. <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, David, what's the cool thing you've seen in the last month? Uh, well... Uh, how do you guys how do you guys feel about smart watches? That's a thing that's been on everybody's tongues lately. <laughs> Ambivalent. <laughs> Ambivalent. Yeah, I I go back and forth as well cuz I haven't worn a watch since I got a mobile phone. Um I wear a watch. So you wear a watch. Yeah. Not today. Yeah. But a mechanical watch and I love it for the fact that it's mechanical. Yeah. Um so I've been looking at, you know, I've been thinking a lot about smartwatches because, you know, there was the big hoop-de-doo with the Samsung Galaxy Gear. Um, There's the the forthcoming Apple Watch. Um, There was the original Pebble Kickstarter, which, you know, people got really excited about and then it was delayed and now some people have it, um, but not sure how many people are using it. But now Pebble's launched a new Kickstarter campaign, which has already raised like $17 million and they still have 18 days left to go. And I mean, this is like a relatively small company, a relatively small startup. And I mean, but people seem to be very, very excited about it. Um, so, you know, I mean, just just to just to talk about more details of it, it has a it has an interesting display. It looks like the technology is based. They're calling it a color e-paper display, but it, it appears to be similar to the Mirasol um, display and the and Qualcomm, the Qualcomm uh, Mirasol, one. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same one, but that helps it save a lot of power. I mean. It's got a seven-day battery life, whereas oh. the the Apple Watch, you know, is only going to have like what, like 
maybe day. a day or something Ish. like that. One day. Um, yeah. And I, it's the exact specification. Yeah, I don't know. So I mean, I that, that's that's seriously the question is how do you guys feel about smartwatches? Because I'm really trying to make up my mind. Like, yeah. do I actually? I don't have a you know, I don't have a Fitbit. I don't. I don't have lots of those things. People seem to be excited about it, but I haven't thought about wearing a watch in a long time. Yeah, and just, yeah. I just, I just don't know how to feel about it. Well, my ambivalence comes from the fact that I keep talking myself into and out of the the thought that it's a good idea. You know, um, we tease ourselves, right? That, oh, we, you know, uh, we really need a smartwatch because this is so onerous. You know, pulls out phone, goes through a gesture of unlocking it and right. bringing yeah. up an app. But truthfully, for a lot of things, that is. Um, there, you know, that this is one of the remaining bits of friction left in interacting with your phone is that sometimes your phone isn't in your hand. If you can overcome a little bit of that friction, uh, I think we I think we would love it. Like if someone nailed the watch and we all started wearing it, we would uh, feel naked without it. Yeah. I mean, we just had a little segment talking about how I bought a feature phone to avoid distraction mm -hmm. from the thing that's in my pocket. So you can imagine how I would feel about the thing that distracts me being on my wrist. With that said, I do use a Fitbit. I do think that the additional sensors in a smartwatch are interesting. The fact that it's against your skin all the time, mm -hmm. et cetera, makes it potentially interesting um, for quantified self kinds of purposes. Uh, but I, I, I'm not... I, I'm, a, I'm enough of a skeptic that I'm not rushing out to double down on a position of Apple stock because of um, the iWatch. I don't see these things as mm -hmm. being the next thing like the phone. I mean, right. I still think yeah. the phone is much more central. I think these things are going to be peripheral. Yeah, it's it's an extension of the phone. It's not a new class of device. Yeah. Well, it's like mm -hmm. it changes it changes where and how information is presented to you, right? I mean, like. When phones first came out, there's kind of this backlash. There still is kind of a backlash. Still, like, socially not very nice to be pulling out your phone in the middle of, like, a dinner conversation or something like that. But it's okay to glance at your wrist, right? I mean, the big problem that Google Glass ran into is that it, it's really great if you're a user, but it really, I mean, it's literally putting a physical object between you and the person that you're trying to talk with. And so right. I think that that kind of contributed to a lot of social stigma around that. And I think that putting a screen on the wrist could be interesting and, and you know, make it more glanceable. I really like, um, you know, do you guys know that that company Razer who makes all the gamer keyboards and mice and accessories mm. and stuff? They're a Taiwanese company. Uh, they are working on a smart watch-esque thing called the Naboo, which is it's kind of in the form factor of a of like one of those Livestrong bracelets. But what's interesting is actually has two displays on it. On the top, it's got just a small pixel display that can give you a single icon like it can vibrate and you can glance at it and it'll show you like a an envelope or like an image of a you know sms or something like that and so you can know what kind of notification you got but then there's another screen that's actually on the on the on the bottom of the wrist side of the thing that you can actually turn your 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 palm of your hand up and mm. look and actually read that information so so you know if you're talking to someone and you get a notification you want to know what kind of notification it is you can just glance you know glance at your wrist like you would a watch but you don't have to suddenly break what you're doing to interact mm -hmm. with it mm -hmm. but then you know if you want to have something that's a little bit more private and feels a little bit more intimate then you can look at the other screen and i think that things like that are really interesting because it's 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 helping to bridge the gap between between what's going on in our digital lives, you know, all the back channels that we're thinking about all the time, all the SMS conversation we're having all the time, but without getting in the way of our actual person-to-person -person interaction in mm -hmm. physical space. Yeah. I think Ringley has created an interesting example here. Uh, Ringley is a, uh, um, it, it looks like a, a woman's ring. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And uh, there's an LED under the, uh, the imitation diamond 
that can can blink and glow in different colors uh, to show you notifications from your phone. Uh, it doesn't have a screen, and it's set up so that you would you would only have the most important notifications register on the Ringly. So you would tell it to uh, to blink if you get a text or phone call from your partner, uh, your boss, and your best friend or something. Mm-hmm. Just choose three types of narrowly defined notifications to come through on the Ringly. So this actually ends up um, it's an it's in a very general sense kind of an, an intrusive manifestation of your phone on your body, but it actually ends up filtering your communications and and pushing your phone back a little bit and making it easier to control how you get interrupted mm-hmm. and easier to say this is important and this is not uh, and I'm going to listen to this. So obviously smartwatches can do that. You can set them up. Um, it's it can be a little difficult to set them up, but you can you can do it eventually so that only you know three people are able to register on your smartwatch. But the Ringly as an example of something I think is is very interesting in looking at how we might use uh, things like smartwatches. All right, so John, what do you got? What's in, what's what have you seen lately that's very interesting? Well, um, I, I uh, took a really unexpectedly cool field trip a couple of weeks ago to NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Well, they've got several of them, right? Yeah, that's right. There's there's one in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, they have a location in Boulder, Colorado that has the official atomic clock for the United States. Uh, their headquarters are in Maryland. I was giving a talk there at, at the um, Smart Cities Challenge. This is an effort by NIST to... Uh, to get a lot of private and public organizations uh, together on sort of smart cities technology, but um, I was standing in the uh, in the lobby um, looking at display cases and came across a case full of uh, NIST's line of standard reference materials, and these are a little wacky at first glance. Uh, I took a photo of standard reference peanut butter and put it on uh, Twitter where it sort of exploded. And then on Reddit, where it really exploded. I thought you were going to say like the meter or oh well, I saw the that milliliter too. or something <laughs> yeah. like that. You know? um, Just to rewind, uh, <laughs> the National Institute of Standards and Technology, right? I mean, they they are literally the people who who keep the kilogram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and work work with other international organizations to define standards, and it can be very interesting how one defines what the standard kilogram. Or inch, or in this case, peanut butter yeah, is yeah, yeah. composed of. And what would be how the purpose th- of standardized peanut butter exactly? <laughs> it's fascinating. The uh, so it it turns out to be ordinary grocery store peanut butter. They won't say whose it is, but it's presumed to be like Jif or um, or or Skippy. And uh, allegedly, allegedly, presumably, allegedly. <laughs> it may be God peanut butter. It does yeah, cost yeah. seven hundred dollars for uh, for a few ounces. Um, and you can order it to your house and taste reference peanut butter. But it's um, so it's ordinary peanut butter, but it comes with a very precise spec sheet. So if you run um, a materials testing lab, a food testing lab, and you're testing a lot of peanut butter and you're getting high readings of arsenic, you can go, oh, is this right? And then you test NIST's reference peanut butter and you compare your reading <laughs> to NIST's reading on it to make sure that your instruments are, are properly calibrated. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, and they make peanut butter. They make uh, freeze-dried oysters. They make slurry of Lake Superior fish. They make uh, <laughs> spam. They make a uh, something that's, that's called domestic sludge. And the idea of this is that these are not necessarily the foods that you would be testing in your lab, but that they all represent sort of corner cases in terms of composition. You know, the peanut okay. butter is a um, a very, uh, uh, you know, thick uh, sort of gelatinous liquid right, that's right. high in fat and protein 
and low in carbohydrates. Um, you know, so then they have something else. They they have a fortified breakfast cereal, standard reference material that would be high in carbohydrates, a solid. You know, so you kind of stake out these corner cases in terms of things you might want to measure and make them available to uh, to people who you know do the very important work of uh, of testing foods and other materials and substances. But it, it was interesting to see this reaction play out on the internet. Um, I put it on Twitter and and immediately just a photograph, just a photograph, yeah. reference peanut butter. I captioned it, which is what it was. Uh, and uh, Twitter exploded. It, uh, it it I think it's been retweeted more than anything else I've ever posted. And, and I noticed this, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of sad, actually, it, it is, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, and and I mean, I have never done anything as sensational as walk through the lobby of an office park in suburban Maryland and take a photo of something of a in a display butter. case. A jar of peanut butter, no less. <laughs> um, and so uh, so I noticed it was doing well and thought it might do well on Reddit, too. And I made what I think is my second or third ever Reddit posting uh, and put the photo on the mildly interesting subreddit. And it went to the front page in a matter of, like, hours. Wow. Uh, and it had, you know, 800 comments. Reddit did a really nice job of surfacing um, these explanations from people who knew what the hell this stuff was. People who were like, I run a food testing lab and this is extraordinarily useful for us and we, you know, use it to ensure that uh, peanut butter doesn't have arsenic in it. And um, uh, that was that was the, the yeah, highest Because you don't want a peanut butter comments. and arsenic sandwich. No, exactly. When, when I order a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I do not want Hold lead the arsenic, or arsenic. Yeah. You know, what's running through like my mind right now is that winning the internet is a truly random event. It is. It is. It is. It's like, in fact, I think the people at NIST who study, you know, uh, uncertainty could, could sort of uh, testify to this. This is a standard reference meme. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How, how fast? What's the decay rate on this on attention on this meme? And, and you could quantify it, but with great uncertainty. The, so it, it did well on Reddit and people came up with good comments that were helpful and everyone walked away going like, well, this is very interesting. I had no idea that food testing was so complex and that the federal government is doing so much to support it. Um, but then, as you may have noticed, uh, Sites like BuzzFeed just sit on the front page of Reddit and find sensational things and turn them into fake little articles that are sort of ripoffs of like things that people write on Reddit. Right. And indeed, two days later, I Google reference peanut butter to see where this thing has gone. Uh, and it ended up on a couple of good blogs. Uh, Boing Boing had it. Um, Eater had it. They all credited, you know, photo, colon. Reddit, <laughs> but um, but so. Boing Boing credited NIST, which which is which is good. I think. Oh, okay, good, yeah. good, good. Well, that's still wrong, but yeah, it's good yeah, of them yeah, to think yeah, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As an aside, someone so all these people were were taking my photo um, and and publishing it elsewhere, but uh, someone messaged me through Reddit from like the Journal of the American Society of Chemical Engineers and and was like, may we have permission to use your photo in the American Journal of Chemical Engineers blog? Um, and I didn't reply to their message because my inbox was flooded by having gotten 800 comments on my thread. <laughs> and I came across it 15 days later and wrote back to them. And I feel really bad because they did the right thing yeah. and I punished them <laughs> right. accidentally. So, um, but eventually this meme started to get to some of the right wing blogs, uh, you know, Gosh. like Newsmax, not, not Newsmax itself, but things like right. Newsmax, um, who made it into kind of like a, well, the Middle East burns, your <laughs> yeah. government is concerned with peanut butter. Obama is standardizing peanut butter. Exactly. <laughs> there now there, of... soon there will only be one peanut butter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Socialism. So long for choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is Obama butter in action. <laughs> But it was this kind of like, thanks, Obama, like, uh, you know, snarkiness and a lot of comments along the lines of like, 
well, I go to the grocery store when I need peanut butter. Why does the government need to be in this business? And, and it just kind of, it emphasized, um, the whole, the whole thing emphasized to me how, uh, extraordinarily, uh, complex the economy and the government are and how much expertise is locked up in, in, you know, uh, these, these, um, fascinating corners of, uh, of the executive branch where you have scientists, uh, who are, you know, the three authorities on how to create a reference food, um, and they're working there and they're creating reference foods and the food industry is grateful for them. Um, but then you also have this strain of political thought that thinks that the federal government should only do things that are superficially obvious to a layperson, And it's kind of a harmful, it's a harmful strain. I don't think in practice it takes too much of a hold. I think that by the time you get to be a senator or something, you start to realize why there oh, are, John. you know, well, okay, okay. Some, some senators, in some cases you get to be a senator and you realize why the government does things that, that it does. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was, it was another interaction that I had with, um, with a technical agency in the government. And, and I've been impressed also when I've talked to people at, uh, you know, at the, at the EPA, at the army Corps of engineers who are just like extraordinarily dedicated, very smart people who know everything about some extremely narrow area, you know, operating dams, um, in the Pacific Northwest, for instance, uh, where there's, there's no market, no place where this happens outside of this agency and they're, and they're, um, extremely good at it. And you sort of appreciate the, the complexity entailed. Yeah. It was a cool, it was a cool thing to get involved with. And I did see a replica of the, uh, the reference kilogram. <laughs> they won't let you see the real one because no. I think it loses weight every time they turn on the lights. But, yeah. um, and the placard under the replica reference kilogram uh, has this line that I love on it. That's like NIST research, ongoing NIST research on Avogadro's number right. may eventually permit the use of a standard defined in terms of a natural constant rather than an artifact. Yeah, they want to be able to tell you how many atoms of something to Yeah, to well, yeah, because the kilogram is one of the, the few remaining units that we it's don't the only have. One. Yeah, yeah, it's the only remaining unit that, that isn't defined in terms of some kind of hard-coded universal natural constant, right? So how, yeah. do, they, how do they make the kilogram? So it, uh, well, initially a kilogram was defined as the weight of a liter of water, and it's, it's close to that still. But, you know, a liter of water is a very hard thing to specify, um, under what pressure, at what temperature, how do you purify it to the degree that that's possible? And so, um, at some point they just, they fixed the kilogram as being equal to this artifact and the main artifact is in Paris, but they also manufactured a few dozen identical, almost identical artifacts. And they know that they're, that they're slightly different as they must be, but the, but the difference then is defined. So the, right. in the U S a kilogram is defined as the weight of this platinum iridium ingot in a vault at NIST plus, uh, you know, so many nanograms or nanokilograms, uh, which is sort of self-referential. Yeah, but I was going to say as a fraction, <laughs> as a fraction yeah. of itself, plus however many fractions of itself or something like that. Or right, so they're they're coming up with a way to define the kilogram such that it's defined in terms of the thing in Washington, but equal to the thing in Paris, which right. is where the main one is. Um, and of course, as we all know, they're, they're, these ingots are diverging. The one in Paris is losing weight faster than the others. So that's what this Avogadro constant thing is. They're developing this thing at NIST called the Watt balance, which is a phenomenally complex balance that will allow them to define a kilogram as some number of, I think, silicon atoms. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and then it will be over. But they, in this little museum that they have, which is totally an, an obligatory stop, in my opinion, the coolest museum that I've 
seen in in a long time. Uh, they have the original meter stick uh, artifacts from before. They redefine that as the distance mm-hmm. that a photon travels in a vacuum in some amount of time. Um, they have uh, the original ohm. So this is the the one ohm resistor that was brought over from Germany in the late nineteenth century to define the ohm awesome. in America. Um, it's just it's a it's a it's a really cool place to visit. It makes you you know consider the complexity of mm-hmm. of setting these standards and and uh, uh, how fortunate we are to be able to rely on on standards. Because they're all very abstract ideas, right? And it's interesting that that there has to be some kind of tie down into the physical world in order for us to actually be well, able and, to use and that them. They propagated physically yeah. through replicas. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is really yeah. cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, in the, you couldn't just say a hundred years ago, an ohm is this, you had to actually send me one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So that's the coolest thing I've seen in the last month. Well, nice. Jim, what else are you thinking about? Yeah, I just have one more quick thing. I'm not going to go into it, but just something to look at. There's a uh, Kickstarter called Piper. Hmm. which lets you take a Raspberry Pi and run a cut-down version of Minecraft on it, but it's got a bunch of outs, physical hardware outs into the system that lets kids, when they want to do a power-up or something in the game, actually have to build something electronically to enable that upgrade in the game. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of mixing the virtual with the physical world of digital electronics and analog electronics, which I think is super cool as a learning huh. environment. So I just wanted so, to give a shout out to it. So you're so you're playing along in the game and then you reach some challenge where you have to actually rewire the uh, yeah. the, the device. Or add some component to it, a switch hmm. or something. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's kind of like the like the new twist. I mean that that's a that's a more natural way to do it than the old learning company games that uh, I was recalling fondly with a friend last night. Um Treasure, like Treasure Mountain. Treasure Mountain. Operation Logical Neptune. Journey of the Zumbinis. <laughs> yeah. Was that actually a game? Oh, yeah. That's great. I've, I've never played that one. Blue things. But these were games yeah. where you're like, you're piloting a submarine around, uh, and it's like a reasonably engaging side-scrolling game. You're trying not to hit fish and like, you oh, know, yeah, bump into these crystals on the ceilings What's and you're collecting Neptune things. Something, Operation something. Neptune. Operation Neptune, yeah. And, um, but occasionally you'd like meet a fish who would query you and be like, <laughs> yeah. what's seven times five? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. That fish just a talked to me. Fish. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, and then that in turn made me recall this uh, uh, mechanical Turk task that I did once uh, a few years ago. I when. Turk, John was down Turk. on his luck at one point. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I realized that I could make Mechanics. as many as $4 an hour <laughs> while at work <laughs> doing yeah. mechanical Turk tasks. Um, it was new, and so I was playing around with a few of the tasks to sort of see what was on there. And a lot of them have the characteristic of those, like, uh, university psychology studies where they don't tell you what they're studying, but you can kind of tell that it's yeah. not what they say they are, right? They're, yeah. they're having you fill out a survey. Um, and telling you that they're interested in your survey responses, but really they're counting how many times you blink or something. Uh, The one that I particularly enjoyed on Mechanical Turk involved um, a flash game where you're piloting around a fish, and it's like scrolling along, kind of a little side-scroller game. Um, And every once in a while, you are asked to decide whether a URL is suspicious or not. (laughs) So it's the the most random thing. You're like, you're driving this fish around and then you meet another fish and the other fish is like www.citybank.com. And you're like, 
not suspicious. And then yeah. he's like, thank you. And he goes yeah. away. And then C- another C- fish City comes was up. a Y bank yeah, yeah, yeah. dot com. Exactly. Yeah. He gives you like www.citybank.com.r496.ru. Suspicious. And the fish is like, and sort of like, you know, vaporizes and disappears. And so I have no idea what this was collecting what this was studying um but i would like to go back and play it a little bit more well you know ziegelbaum uh sorry jamie ziegelbaum uh who we interviewed in the previous podcast that we recorded uh the digital media artist uh recently did a piece called i think it was called window to doorway to the soul i believe which was you walk into the gallery and there's just a uh you know micro tiles it's like a small it's like a small screen um that's maybe like nine inches by 12 inches or something like that and it's just a micro tile um screen on top of a pedestal that's about at eye level and there's just a person sitting there staring out of the screen at you. And where that face has come from is that it's a mechanical Turk task that he set up um, that just told people with no context, I will pay you 60 cents to stare into your webcam for two minutes. <laughs> and, then it, and, then it just, and then it just pipes it directly into this installation in an art gallery. And so just like every couple of minutes, you just like see a different random person just like staring back out of this thing at eye level at you with, with no context for either one of you. It's great. Oh, that's that's awesome. awesome. But really, it's reverse and they're looking at you. Yeah, exactly. You're getting, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Um, we can go deeper. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure to speak. It's good to see you guys again. Yeah, you too. For links and other information related to this episode, visit radar.oreilly.com. If you liked this conversation, you'd certainly enjoy the Solid Conference, coming to San Francisco in April 2016. For more on the Solid Conference, visit solidcon.com. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruder.